Welcome to Whistleblower Network News. I am your host, Jane Turner, FBI whistleblower and advocate. It is our honor to share with you these experiences of real-life heroes and people of integrity. Welcome. This is Jane Turner, FBI whistleblower and whistleblower advocate. And today on Whistleblower of the Week, we have quite the honor hosting acclaimed academic Dr. Joan Donovan, who has devoted her research to exploring modes of media manipulation and its cultural, structural, and societal impacts. Currently an assistant professor of journalism and emerging media studies in the College of Communications at Boston University, Dr. Donovan founded the Critical Internet Studies Institute and is the former director of the Technology and Social Change Research Project at Harvard's Kennedy Shorenstein Center. At Shorenstein Center, Dr. Donovan directed the Technology and Social Change Research Project, conducting research, developing methods, and facilitating workshops for journalists, policymakers, technologists, and civil society organizations on how to detect, document, and debunk media manipulation campaigns. Dr. Donovan has raised millions in grants testified before Congress and has been a frequent commentator on television, often faulting internet companies for profiting from the spread of divisive falsehood. Her work is all about holding big tech companies like Meta accountable for issues ranging from disinformation, teen mental health, and war and political propaganda. After the leak of the Facebook papers in 2021 and Francis Haugen's testimony to Congress, Dr. Donovan set to make the documents publicly available in a database. As the project launched, she began losing her academic freedom as restrictions to her research increased. Dr. Donovan admitted a complaint to Harvard, the U.S. Secretary of Education, and the Massachusetts Attorney General on January 15th, alleging Harvard officials of taking cues and acting on behalf of Meta's best interest while questioning her research methodologies specifically regarding Facebook. She claims that the university began restricting her research after the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative donated $500 million to fund a new university-wide center on artificial intelligence. Harvard and the Chain Zuckerberg Foundation strongly dispute Dr. Donovan's claims. Welcome, Dr. Donovan. You are a towering figure. And thank you for battling for the rest of us in regards to this whole area of disinformation. And you right now are speaking truth to power. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Jane. It's really great to be here in your company. Excellent. Walk us through, Doctor, the timeline of your career 
and research projects at Harvard and the imposition of restrictions that they placed on you. Yeah, so I've been, um, you know, throughout my life, very interested in issues related to social movements, communication, um, did my dissertation research at University of California, San Diego on the rise of network social movements, particularly the, uh, the Occupy movement. And so years later, as I watched the rise of the alt-right and was doing research about white supremacists and DNA ancestry testing online, I had a, a kind of front row seat to the organizing of uh, disinformation campaigns as they uh, rose in the 2016 elections, even though I wasn't necessarily researching politics at the time. And from that work, I was recruited over to Data and Society Research Institute in New York to conduct research on media manipulation, disinformation. And I worked with a very smart team, mostly of young women who were interested in these same kinds of big picture questions about tech. So by the time I get to Harvard, there's a nascent field emerging around media manipulation and disinformation. And there's some really great scholars who are toiling away at understanding bad actors online. As I'm at Harvard and I'm looking around and I'm trying to understand what's happening, it dawns on me as we're doing the research that maybe there's something else going on here. Uh, it is now my view that disinformation and media manipulation campaigns are as much a product of Meta or X or Twitter at the time or YouTube as are any other genre of content. And really, it's bad product design and lack of oversight and lack of enforcement within these companies that gives bad actors the actual capacity to reach millions of people with grifts, scams, hoaxes, fakes. And as I was doing my research in the field, I also no noted that different companies had different angles on how they would enroll university researchers into their um, into their work stream. So in some instances, you might have a company that will fund research and they're not necessarily interested in the outcomes. But what became pervasive as I was working at Harvard and the field was growing is that Meta was pouring more and more money into research about itself. But we're picking winners and losers in terms of who had access to funding to do their studies, as well as what kind of data they were able to utilize. This is different from Twitter that wasn't giving out necessarily large research grants but were but had opened up their API that is access to the data for academics for free. And so academics um, who wanted data from Facebook had a really difficult time getting it. And what we saw in our field is that if someone did come up with or understand one of these products and its harmful effects, 
you would be not just up against your own field in terms of proving your findings, you'd be up against the corporation's PR machine in terms of getting them, um, well, essentially, they would never admit any wrongdoing on their own part, but they would attack researchers um, very publicly. And I've seen researchers, you know, throw their arms up in the air saying, what are we supposed to do? Which is why when Francis Haugen um, was became a whistleblower and took those documents from Facebook. And when I saw these documents, I realized these companies know what we know. And not only are they fighting us in the press, not only are they fighting against us, but they're also fighting um, a very inside strategy of trying to co-opt research and turn researchers into a wing of their PR. And so I, as a researcher, have dedicated my research time and energy to looking at those product designs and of making sense of digital harms. And unfortunately, when I did get my hands on lawfully the catch of Haugen documents, and I stated my intention to my own dean uh, that I was going to make these documents available to the public, I, it was slowly that I started to um, understand the depth of Meta's connections to Harvard and that my own research, as long as I focused on the bad guys or I focused on other companies, I was fine. But anytime I started to look more in-depthly at Meta, especially at Harvard, there was a major problem. And I'll just sum it up as saying that later we found out, um, or I found out, that it wasn't just that Meta were alumni, um, Meta executives were alumni of Harvard. They were also close personal friends with my own dean, um, who four days before letting me go, attended Sheryl Sandberg's wedding and was photographed in People magazine of all places. And it just made me think that no matter what you do in academia, you know, I had a fully funded research program. I was the golden goose at Harvard in the sense that very few qualitative research programs raise the kind of money and profile that I do. Um, but that I wasn't going to be permitted to do research about Meta at Harvard and that I was going to be questioned for it. And after that, what it led to was a, a sort of death by a thousand paper cuts. There was more and more bureaucracy added into decisions that needed to be made. I was put on a hiring freeze. I wasn't able to spend my budgets on any kind of public-facing outputs like a podcast. Um, and I thought that this was a really big scandal, not just because my own interpersonal involvement, um, but because what the institution of education and what universities are here to do is tell these uncomfortable truths and to make sense of a disorganized and chaotic world. And I started to realize more and more as I was at Harvard 
that there are a lot of people within Harvard that are content to um, maintain the status quo. It's the only place in the world where I've worked that um, university administrators and other faculty members are also millionaires. And you start to realize that there is a lot going on at this university in terms of backroom deals, in terms of corruption, and that I'm just another story among many uh, within that storied institution that um, should be rooted out and investigated. Excellent. Um, So, doctor, this is critical research that you're conducting because this whole issue of disinformation is just critically important in today's world. I mean, this is so important what you're doing. When did you sense things were starting to change there at Harvard? What was it connected to your work and the university's connections with Meta? When did you start noticing that they were breathing down your neck on your research? Yeah, so unfortunately it was a it was a very abrupt change. I had been selected by the dean to speak to a group um, called the Dean's Council, which is a group of donors, people that have spent um, uh, a lot of their money um, to make large donations to the Kennedy School. And so it was a Zoom call in October of 2021 where I was on the call and there were about, I, I don't know, I don't remember how many, but a couple dozen donors um, so you can imagine the Zoom windows open and there's, you know, many boxes of people. Some people are getting their hair done. Other people are eating breakfast. Um, and me and my uh, supervisor are asked to have a dialogue about disinformation and democracy. And it's on that call that we first start talking about the Haugen disclosures that had also come out that month. And she had recently testified in front of Congress. And so it was top line news at the moment. And Mm -hmm. my my colleague asked me what I thought about the documents. And I said um, on that call that I've seen them, that I have them. I I have them in my possession. And I'm I'm concerned that these are some of the most important documents in the history of the Internet and that. that Meta knew all along what much of our research knew about um, how their products cause harm. And um, it was at that moment that uh, a Meta executive who was also on the call, who had been the former um, head of PR and, and held a few different positions at Meta over his years, um, he was angry. And so he started waving his arms and trying to turn his microphone on. He wanted to interrupt the presentation, which he couldn't do because of everybody was muted. But the moderator interrupted to say that there will be questions afterwards. And we moved on in the conversation about 10 minutes discussing these documents. And we moved on to discuss other things. But the moment of the Q&A was very embarrassing because he was given the first question. Um, he started rattling off obvious talking points from Meta. You know, how do we even know what misinformation is? 
There's no <laughs> real way to understand disinformation. The arbiters of truth line about Facebook isn't the arbiter of truth and that it's here to connect people and that these documents are just internal research, nothing to worry about. Oh. Um, and I sat there and I looked at the faces of the people on the call, particularly the faces of the people that should have been defending me. Um, and they were freaked out, including the dean. And so eventually another person chimes in, the moderator, to say that um, this line of questioning is not appropriate and that the work that I do is sound. Uh, and it was less than a week later, I got an email or about a week later, I got an email from the dean asking me these very same questions that could have been written by Meta themselves about my research. Now on that call and in my research, I talk about YouTube and Gab and 4chan and all of these other platforms. I, I you know, I study, um, a media ecosystem. I don't just study one platform. And at that time, when the dean had started asking me about Meta and my research about Meta, on what basis I'm making public comments about Meta, he all the dean also knew of our plans to make an archive of these Facebook documents. Um, legally, Francis Haugen is only able to provide those documents to uh, Congress and law enforcement. So I received the documents not from her, but separately. And the plan was to work with colleagues at Harvard to build a collaborative archive that people, researchers and journalists from all over the world could utilize and annotate and add links to and add context to in order to understand these documents and understand um, what was happening internally at Facebook. And that entire work plan was undermined over the next year as I struggled to do even basic things like hire an events coordinator. So you spoke truth to power. You're talking about your research and, and uh, the retaliation sounds like it started almost right away or was there a period of time or right from the start, boom, they started chipping away at you, which is very typical with whistleblowers. Yeah, it really was very, very quick. And um, unfortunately, in November, right after the dean had called, essentially called me into the principal's office, um, he wanted to have a meeting about my research quickly. He wanted to involve all of the other deans at the school. It was it was a, a pretty hot moment. And I got COVID and was hospitalized for nearly a month. I was out for two months on disability. So that meeting only was able to happen in January it was literally the first thing that I did when I got back to the university. And in that meeting, it felt a lot like a dissertation defense. They wanted, they didn't want me to use slides, but they wanted me to justify the entire basis of the field that I work in and justify the research projects that I had selected. And it just felt to me like um, I, I was being set up to fail. And from that moment forward, it became very difficult for me to hire. It became difficult for me to coordinate events. Um, everything was very slow. 
anywhere in the bureaucracy that I needed a decision to be made, it was deflect or delay. And that went on for a couple of months. And I realized more and more that I was being pushed out in that uh, potentially, a, uh, I don't want to say a smarter person, but like a more cultured person might see these signs. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of low class and from Massachusetts. I don't always know when to leave the party. Um, <laughs> but, you know, talking to more of my senior colleagues that have been through it uh, at different universities, when the bureaucracy locks, that's your sign that you're, you are going no further. And even though I had a contract through December 31st, 2024, and I had at that point five or so million dollars in the bank at Harvard already, I was being wound down. So in August of 2022 is when the dean finally told me that he's winding me down and that he's not going to approve any expenditure that increases my public profile, which to me is a really big loss to the public because I'm one person, but I was at, you know, at the height at, at, at Shorenstein, I employed 40 people. We were more than half the center and we were doing really great research that was getting a lot of uptake by key stakeholders, policymakers, Um, you know, congressmen, we were, you know, training journalists, we really had a, a a really important and positive public impact and momentum um, about our research. And in August of 2022, when he said that it was devastating, because I, I knew what it implied, which was essentially that we were going to go no further. He also told me that I don't have academic freedom. I don't know anyone that goes to work at a university and does research that doesn't suppose that the university will be protecting their academic freedom. And I thought in my head, okay, what he's telling me is if I were to proceed with publishing these papers, these documents from Meta, he would allow me to become personally liable. He wouldn't use the university research to defend me. And I thought a lot about that. I thought a lot about my team and how uh, I employ a lot of junior researchers who are not financially stable. You know, I I didn't think we would withstand uh, that kind of assault, given that Meta has plenty of money to waste. I mean, And, um, but importantly, I think before all of that happened, after that October meeting in 2021, um, it became blatantly clear that I was being pushed out because Chan Zuckerberg in December, so while I was out sick with COVID, uh, gave the university $500 million to start an AI center. And that money doesn't come in all at once. It's a 15-year endowment. So Meta really bought 15 years of influence at Harvard. And I, you know, in thinking about that, I realized, yeah, I'm I'm kind of pushing the boulder uphill, hoping mm-hmm. it doesn't roll back. Um, 
it was unfortunate because at that point I had so many, I had so many, I had so much funding in Harvard that it was really hard to imagine a situation where I would walk away from the funding. Um, But there was no full faith effort to support me while I was there. Um, And that was what was unfortunate to me about the way it all wrapped up is that um, I didn't take the sign that I was being kicked out. And so it took them about a year to um, terminate my contracts. Uh, They took away my research funding and wouldn't allow me to use my budgets. And successively over time, they also restricted me from uh, even at one point speaking about what was happening to me. And I thought, wow, they really want this to go away quietly. And mm-hmm. um, and in many respects, I felt that if I did go away cl- quietly, um, I would be complicit in what I'm now calling grand theft academia. There's mm-hmm. still, I believe, $3 million of my money at Harvard, but they wouldn't give me any uh, budgets or expenditures or anything related to my uh, research endeavor for the last year of my time there. So I can't be sure how they were spending the money um, or what they were putting it towards. But I do know that I had enough money to last um, at a $3 million per year burn rate uh, through the end of my contract in December 2024. Welcome to the world of whistleblowing. I mean, Mobbing. Isn't it the worst though? It's the worst. It is because your colleagues turn on you. Yes, everyone does. Mobbing, isolation. It's Mm -hmm. really, really terrible. But you know, Doctor, I I wanted to ask you a question here because our our listeners really would like to know this. But I've written stories and we've had whistleblowers that were involved in the media and uh and they've ha- they have horrific stories on what's going on there i mean really horrific stories some of these huge uh, uh media organizations listening in if you have mm-hmm. one of their pieces of equipment uh algorithms that are really evil in some aspects so I have no doubt that what you're saying is right on, but maybe you could give us a flavor or a feel for what was in the Facebook papers that caused so much consternation and panic over the fact you might reveal or open them up. Could you share with us what was in Yeah, so papers? some of the things have been covered in extensive journalism by the Wall Street Journal. There's a new book out um, by Jeff Horowitz, who is also uh, involved in Francis covering Francis Haugen's uh, whistleblowing. But what you learn is that, in particular, when it comes to, say, teen mental health, they knew that Instagram as a product was a problem and that was um, impacting young teen girls especially who are feeling much worse about their body image because of the way that there was so much access to these flawless pictures due to the filtering and 
uh, um, uh, aspects and that in their explore feed. So these are when you're looking at what Meta is recommending to you rather than what it is that you're searching for. You see a lot of content that that is somewhat aspirational, um, but is also unachievable for uh, teens. And so there had been some independent research about Instagram in the past, but nothing that really confirmed uh, so deeply and darkly what was happening on that platform. For instance, um, you know, there was also a whistleblower very recently, Arturo Behar, um, who had been part of the product de- product design team at Instagram, talking about how many teenagers experience unwanted sexual advances because adults can easily message young people on the platforms. And there is going to be a congressional hearing about protecting teens online or protecting children online um, uh, in January 2024. But nevertheless, um, the other things that Facebook was very afraid of was really just creating a long tail of crisis in PR for their products. So you even have at that same time, uh, Facebook becomes deprecated as the the name of the company and the company changes its name to Meta so that um, it becomes less affiliated with the Facebook brand. Uh, But what we could tell even from the Facebook brand is that they knew that their algorithms were leading people into conspiracy rabbit holes and that they played some role in uh, incitement uh, of groups of people who met on Facebook and then used Facebook to organize um, for events like January 6th. Mm-hmm. And so Facebook knew all along that there were problems with the design of their products and the lack of oversight and enforcement um, of their uh, of their products. And I think also another key dimension here is also the cross-check list, which was a list of celebrities and politicians and high-networked individuals that didn't have to follow the same terms of service as everybody else. They got a pass because they were a public figure. Tell me what that means, Dr. Donovan. What do you mean they got a pass? Yeah, so if you're a public figure or politician, say, for instance, Trump, and you're posting election disinformation, um, up until January 6th, they would allow him to keep his account. And there had been other instances of celebrities using the app to uh, target and harass people or others that they don't like, um, doxing, etc., which made it so that normally Meta would ding those um, accounts and either flag them or not recommend them or even remove the account entirely. But because these were celebrities or public figures, uh, they worried about their brand management and the reputation of their brand before the safety of the public. And I think that that's what's at stake here, too, is that um, in, in some ways, what Meta has built with Facebook and Instagram these are technologies designed specifically to deliver advertising. 
And consumers like you and me, we can post our, you know, images, our birthday parties and whatnot. Um, But really how they make money is using the same infrastructure to ensure that you see certain posts that their advertisers provide. And what we've known for years about so uh, the the products of Meta and Facebook is that advertising is also another conduit in which uh, illegitimate accounts can gain traction. That is, they can gain followers or they can use advertising to reach audiences that they wouldn't organically be introduced to. And so in many ways, the technology itself, when you really boil it down, what it is, is it's advertising technology that the rest of us are empowered to use so that there's an audience for those advertisements. And ultimately, I think the way that these platforms should be dealt with then is they should be regulated like broadcast and like other technology or other um, organizations that have that broadcast feature and do make their money through advertising. Hi, we'll be right back with more of Whistleblower of the Week after a quick message from one of our whistleblower friends. Don't go anywhere. My name is Sharon Watkins. For better or worse, I am known as the Enron Whistleblower, and I certainly have a heart for those going through anything that can be called blowing the whistle or speaking truth to power. I am here today to encourage every one of you to participate in making National Whistleblower Day permanent. You can do this by going to www.whistleblowersblog.org and joining notable whistleblowers like Jane Turner, Bunny Greenhouse, Aaron Restwick, Fred Whitehurst, and myself in taking action. We are urging our representatives, and you can too, urge your representatives and President Biden to sign an executive order recognizing whistleblowers on a permanent National Whistleblower Day. Again, that's www.whistleblowersblog.org. Together we can make this happen. Thank you. So, Doctor, tell me, with the upcoming election and with the wars going on, in the Middle East, and uh, so many things happening, how is Meta able to manipulate or utilize those situations to enrich themselves? You know, information is currency on social media. And so we are seeing declines in adoption of Facebook But Meta really sees Instagram as its most potent technology for uh, reaching young users and then getting those young users to sign up other family members. Um, But when it comes to content that you're talking about, like information that we need, the facts, especially when it comes to very contentious wars where we're trying to assess, you know, Mm -hmm. what is the damage? What is the human toll? Uh, 
it is incumbent upon technology companies to be able to provide facts as a public service. I use this acronym TALK, Timely Accurate Local Knowledge. What we go to news for is that exact thing. We want it, we want timely, accurate local knowledge. We want real talk. And what social media platforms provide though is some of that in a bunch of other static. And unfortunately you have a company like Meta where in Canada they're trying to fill the gap in local news by addressing um the dominance of these major platforms by saying these platforms have become the conduits between uh, the public and information on the other side. And in between, what the platforms are able to do is really capture all of that advertising revenue. And they don't circulate it back out so that downstream of, you know, searching on Google, you might go to a local uh, news outlet, but it's becoming less and less likely that advertisers are going to have their advertising so downstream. It makes more sense to put your advertising in line with where people are sourcing information and then not just hoping that they click on the link that then goes to your ad. So advertising has changed so dramatically with social platforms that local news is not going to survive it. So in Canada, they proposed a online news act, which would require these mega corporations, these big tech companies to pay into funds for local journalism. It was supposed to happen in proportion to the amount of links that were distributed on these platforms. However, there have been some negotiations now where Google is going to pay, or Alphabet, the parent company of Google, is going to pay $100 million into a fund for local journalism in Canada. Facebook decided they're just going to turn off the news in Canada. Yeah, I know. Astounding. Astounding betrayal of the public trust. So on Facebook, if you try to share, say, Canadian Broadcasting Corp, CBC News from their URL, Facebook will break the URL and then, you know, essentially show you a, I'm sorry, we're not going to provide you with the this link. And that's because they claim that the regulation is so overreaching. Now, research out of McGill University has shown that 5 million interactions with the news per day are lost because Facebook is breaking the links to news. And so that just shows you that a company like Facebook isn't interested in the greatest public good. And Facebook will say, well, only 3% of newsers' feeds are news articles anyway. And I think to myself, well, that's better than none. But mm -hmm. also, this has to do with how Facebook's algorithms are designed. Right. They are designed to give what Facebook calls MSI, meaningful social interactions, 
which they believe come from news and uh, come from family and friends, not the news. And so we are witnessing in real time a lesson for the U.S., which is that if you ask these companies to give you information that matters, like information about elections, like vetted information about the wars going on in Ukraine and and Gaza right now, um, if you're in Canada, you get no reputable information. And that, to me, shows the power of these platforms, which is to say that no company should be in charge of making information infrastructure that doesn't have a pledge to informing the citizenry about important information that is crucial for the governance of their everyday lives. I think that that move by Facebook really just illustrates in the most jarring sense the difference between Meta and other corporations that um, are part of this field, uh, this new information environment that we're working within. And remember, it's not that old, right? We're really only dealing with, you know, maybe the company's 20 years old or so, but we're really only dealing with this last 10 years of market dominance by these tech companies. And I think we can um, change the game entirely if we mandate public interest obligations for social media platforms. But doctor, it's not going to change if a prestigious institution of higher learning like Harvard uh, shuts up their whistleblowers or people who are trying to bring this knowledge to light, this truth to light. So, so do you equate what happened to you to the fact that Facebook gave them 500 million and so they kind of were bought off or what other reason would it be to shut up a whistleblower when the whistleblower has such incredibly important information? I think from my perspective, um, not to be too cynical here, but Harvard is the definition of the old boys club, you know, and what we're dealing with is a new power elite. These are people who've been highly educated that know how to create media campaigns and sustain them. So one of the things that I've been waiting for in terms of the attacks on me is just, you know, what's unassailable is the research. They can't go at the research, right? Mm -hmm. And so what happened to me is I was just a lowly staff member, just like the 6,000 other academic staff at Harvard. And so the dean, you know, based on his personal relationships with people at Meta, felt some type of way about us using the moniker of Harvard to share the light with the world about what was happening inside of this company 
and how we knew what we knew and what we needed to research. Um, unfortunately, Harvard at this stage is a failing brand. Um, you see it in the, um, you know, the missives of former president Larry Summers on X. Every couple of weeks, he seems to come out with a new diatribe about how he's no longer in power at Harvard and that there are new people in charge and that he doesn't want, you know, people like Claudine Gay at the helm if they're not going to tow the, the you know, tow the line on on what um, they think is important. But, you know, when I look around that university and I think about the new president, Alan Garber, and his ties to pharmaceutical companies and how does a provost at a university become a millionaire, right? They do it because they're in line with and also networking in the background um, with companies either to turn a blind eye or turn a kind eye to uh, these corporations. And, um, and it's years and years and years of entrenchment that, mm. um, unfortunately, w- when I was at Harvard, I, I took copious notes and I kept a very close view on, you know, different companies and how they came into the Harvard fold and how they interacted with faculty. And um, I wasn't surprised that other institutes at Harvard were content to hold uh, meetings of the Facebook Oversight Board on campus. Why should the Facebook Oversight Board be meeting on Harvard campus? Well, because Harvard sees it as a partner, not as a threat or a liability. And this only happens because there is funding and there's prestige to be had. But as we think about this new network power elite and we look at the sons and daughters of executives at these companies, it's not uncommon to see them uh, on campus and in the classrooms and um, mentioning the work of their fathers and their mothers that are at these corporations or in the um, in the Harvard Kennedy School, taking a leave from one of these companies in order to become uh, more educated. But it's always strategic in Harvard in terms of how people become network and, and how these corporations want you to see them as being of broad public benefit. Most of my interactions with or initial interactions with people in tech companies that some of them have gone on to be lobbyists uh, in Congress on behalf of these tech companies um, happened in Harvard, happened at Harvard in the, in the hallways and in, in office hours. And, um, you know, in some respects, people do think, Oh, these corporations, they're run by good people. These good people want good things for the world. Um, but what we're realizing time and time again is that these companies don't have public obligations. They don't even have the same kind of, um, ethics that say journalism or academia has in terms of what you should and shouldn't do with human subjects and how you should, um, ensure the broadest public benefit uh, based on your work. And I'm just 
in many ways, you know, I'm a child of the generation of Rage Against the Machine, right? I'm not um, deluded by this idea that our institutions are uncorruptible and that academia is going to save the day. But I am an idealist in my soul. And I wasn't going to just sit there and let this happen around me. I wasn't going to just sit there and say, oh, if you don't want me to research Facebook, I'll just turn my eye onto something else. Um, And I probably could have, and the heat probably would have died down. But because I kept the pan hot, um, you know, I got thrown into it. Well, could we say you were constructively discharged? I mean, yeah, that was one of the first things that my employment lawyer was saying to me is this feels like constructive discharge. Yes. And part of it even dealt with, you know, talk about the isolation of whistleblowers. Oh, yeah. When I didn't get the hint that it was time to go, um, one of my managers uh, started to interfere with my employee relationships and wanted one of my employees essentially to make a complaint about me. Sure. Um, my employee, my employee herself is a very reputable human being and, and saw what was happening. Um, and I'm very lucky that she told me immediately what was happening. You are lucky. And when I reported it to HR, they basically said, Oh, well, this is unprofessional conduct. It's not retaliation. Uh, And I'm like, oh, okay. And it's not constructive discharge, but you're free to go. Right. And and I had a contract that they decided they weren't going to honor, even though at that point I hadn't gone public. um, I hadn't given any interviews. I followed their rules um, because I didn't. The hard part was, is I had this team of really smart young, energetic people. And Harvard was telling the Harvard PR machine was telling people publicly that we had till June of 2024 to wind down, which I think was a date specifically picked so that I would be um, not capable of doing election research. But also internally, they were giving my team very short contracts. So instead of renewing them for a year, Everybody was on these two to three month um, at a time contracts, which basically diverted a lot of our energy into uh, helping them get new positions elsewhere. Right. So in terms of constructive discharge, I believe that that's what was going on here um, in that if the stakes weren't so personally Hi, um, I probably would have walked away mm-hmm. before, you know, things got as bad as they did internally, but I felt a certain duty to my team. Uh, I felt a duty to the research to see it through. I felt a duty to the uh, people who've supported my research over the years. And I also felt a duty to uh, my field to try to see how far this would go, uh, given the fact that, you know, I've never been academically sanctioned. I've never been a a problem in terms of, uh, my research, not meeting the, um, 
requirements and excelling uh, in my fields. But unfortunately, uh, good work and good intentions uh, don't pay the bills. No, they do not. And unfortunately, that's a hard lesson whistleblowers learn. Did they come after you personally? I mean, in terms of spreading rumors about you or uh, one of the things, especially with female whistleblowers, is uh, making, you know, subtle little digs about mental competency or did they do any of that uh, kind of shading on your reputation? Not stable. Very common. Yeah, one of my supervisors, I'll never forget how awful she was over email, just incredible gaslighting, saying that yes. I had been uh, exhibiting disturbing behavior Typical. because I was making jokes about being fired and that I, in academia, so in academia, it's, it's not uncommon for you to get, you know, told that you're at, you're going to finish out your contract and it's time to move on. And if that was the agreement here, we'd have no problems because by the end of it, I would have spent all my money. Harvard wouldn't have stolen or taken $3 million from me. Um, You know, me and my research, like it would have been fine if that was the agreement. But internally, my supervisor, when she was sending me these emails, I just felt like, oh, man, she's really trying to get me to pop off here. Like she's Mm -hmm. trying to get me so in my own head Mm -hmm. that I start behaving irrationally, that I start, um, you know, not being able to control my emotions or whatnot. So I just asked her, I said, you know what, let's just keep this in email from here on out because I know where this goes. You know, mm-hmm. and I asked She's her to name the yep. d- disturbing behavior, and and she was like, "Oh, well, you told a colleague you were being fired," and I was like, "Listen, wound down, terminated, whatever right. you want to say. Like, I have my words. I can use my words." And then that led to uh, email or a meeting and an email from the dean claiming that. Uh, I wasn't allowed to talk to my colleagues or any donors right. about what was happening to me unless it was coordinated with the Shorenstein Center. And um, not long after that, the Harvard Crimson newspaper got a blind item from I don't know who that was taking aim at the dean. This is the Dean Elmendorf is the same man that rescinded a fellowship offer that was going out to Ken Roth, um, who was the head of Human Rights Watch. So the dean uh, heard that there was an offer out to him, and um, he decided personally, I guess, that he was going to remove that offer to Ken Roth. And Ken Roth and uh, another faculty member at the Harvard Kennedy School, Matthias Reese, um, basically did a media campaign to let the world know that the dean was acting on behalf of donors because the dean had said to the faculty member, you can't have Ken Roth as a fellow, not that I care, but that people he cares about don't want this to happen. And uh, I think it just goes to show that then when my story comes out in the Crimson, 
I remember being on the phone with the reporter crying, telling him not to publish the story because I'm still trying to negotiate contracts for my team. I'm not allowed to talk to anybody. So I'm in my head saying to him, like, listen, I can't talk to you, but please don't mm -hmm. do this. Um, but he did. He published the story. And, and I think that that's what hastened um, my exit. But it was it's hard because I don't know who wanted to take shots at Dean Elmendorf and saw my story as a convenient way to do that. Um, and I, in, within my supervisors, these are people that I highly valued as friends and colleagues. And they were the ones that, um, you know, really landed the, the hatchets. Yes. I I just keep thinking, welcome to the world of whistleblowing. I mean, it's just brutal. And here you're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to do research, which is critically important in our society. Is the project over uh, uh, it, once they were able to run you out? Um, is is the project still going or is it gone? It's it's gone for now. They've taken all my intellectual property. They claim that because I was a staff member, they own all of my uh, all of the IP that I've created, and that to me is very strange um, because some of the IP they claim they own was for my book, which I have a separate contract for and did in off hours. But they claim that they own that. They claim that they own. Um, my very big research project located at mediamanipulation.org. And they basically put a tombstone uh, uh, disclaimer on it that it's not going to be updated. Uh, there's a lot of research that we were doing and in the process of that I don't know the fate of because I don't know what would happen if I did keep pursuing it and publishing it. Um so that's something that my employment lawyers uh, are going to have to try to negotiate with Harvard. It's really hard because Harvard is, you know, I pay. It costs me money to do this every time. Um, and Harvard just seems to have unlimited resources oh, yeah. where no person feels the pain of defense, you know, against this. And so in some respects, it's really, you know, trying to find someone within Harvard that is willing to uh, do the right thing and uh, get me my intellectual property back as well as return the funding to donors so that we can continue the work. Um, that being said, Boston University has been incredible in terms of getting Good. me back up to speed, making sure that I have, um, you know, resources within the school to do some of the work that I want to do on networked incitement and election defense for 2024 and the work that I want to do around building a, a political internet observatory that archives what politicians post online. Um, so I have some things that I'm going to do in the interim, but it does seem to me, you know, to be a real loss to have this research locked up in the coffers of Harvard, um, not to be seen really 
again. And I don't know how long they'll keep up mediamanipulation.org for. Um, but nevertheless, you know, from, from my personal vantage point, um, you know, it's really daunting to take on the biggest corporation in the world yes. and the biggest, well, Harvard is a corporation through and through as, as yes. is Meta. But um, in, in some ways, I'm lucky that some of the hits that I've taken from Harvard and the media are read by the public as being really mm -hmm. snarky and pithy and saying that my research team lacked an intellectual lead when we were one of the main reasons why new faculty were even coming to the Shorenstein Center. Um, you know, I have a PhD and, and they recruited me to Harvard to do this work. Right. Um, but it was only when I focused on meta that I became, uh, enemy number one. Exactly. And so and I, I have to ask you, Dr. freedom is something that the university has to commit itself to. Right. And what my case showed, the only interviews that Dean Elmendorf was willing to give were statements about me not having academic freedom because I was a staff member. What the academic freedom policy at Harvard says is very different, which is that community, the community of Harvard itself has academic freedom, including the students, including the academic staff, um, and that that freedom must be protected. And I think that elite, at elite institutions, we have allowed donors to overstep. I'm thinking here, too, of um, the way in which Nicole Hannah-Jones was run out of UNC, and it was a donor who didn't want her to have this prestigious chair and tenure uh, at the university. And because this man had given $25 million, when he wasn't heard internally, he went to the press. And we have at Harvard very similar instances. If they don't get heard internally, they go to the press. And because Dean Elmendorf was willing to um, sort of lower the guillotine on me, uh, Meta didn't have to go to the press. But to be sure, academic freedom only exists if the bureaucrats and the administrators in a university defend it. So this is not just happening at Harvard. It's happening at almost all the universities. It's happening Money. at a lot of the bigger ones that are willing to um, take on contentious projects. Mm -hmm. Listen, I could pack up my bags tomorrow and do a, a participant observation of cruise ships and how people vacation, right? Like you can study anything in academia. You really can. Um, but I've dedicated my life to public service. And as a result, uh, I choose projects that are consequential for public knowledge. And while I don't have the funding that I once had at this stage to do that, I have no doubt that in five years I'll be up and running 
and back fighting the way I want to be fighting. But until that time, I think we are going to have to look at university grants and donors. And I think it's well past time for universities to have gift givers sign a no influence clause. Yes. Which is to say that if they're giving a large donation to a university, they should not be allowed to influence the decisions at that university, especially when it comes to hiring. Um, you know, and, and I think the consequences are are dire if we mm-hmm. turn our universities into PR wings of corporations. I agree totally. And is it true you mentioned that uh Facebook has set up a series of research engagements where Facebook by contract has the right to kill these projects uh, before they get published. Is that true? Yeah. So within some of the contracts that I've seen from colleagues, Facebook has a clause in there that says that they are entitled to pre-publication review and that if they deem if any of the publication is uh, revealing private information that Facebook has the right to revoke publication. And what they mean by private information, now this is what's, this is the, this is the detail that matters, is that it could be private information about users, or it could be private corporate information about the algorithm, about how the design of the system works. And I think my field of internet studies needs to get much better at adversarial methods. We need to get much better at not asking these companies for access, but devising ways to get access to data that allows us to do our auditing and our studies of these platforms, but doesn't require us to work with these companies. There were several um, important um, papers that came out in Nature and Science this year that I think really show the failure of these corporate academic partnerships where um, Facebook was working with university researchers. The university researcher would ask a question. Facebook researchers would then go and look at the data and surface a summary of the data for the researcher. And you just had to take it on belief that the data they were giving you was the real data. And then Mm. this gets published in our highest status journals. And what we found out in that interaction is that if the researcher had worded their question differently, they would have been able to access different forms of data. And so it wasn't the case that Facebook was a true partner in research in that sense but rather that they were still doing PR. And we cannot allow PR to drive research about these corporations. Um, but nevertheless, I'm, I'm in the minority in my field in terms of not taking money or data from these corporations. Uh, but I'm you know much more in line with the ethics of old, which is that the appearance of impropriety is impropriety. And so my research 
has to stay independent and on the outside. And I hope my researcher colleagues will understand the stakes here, which is that in 10 years' time, if we allow the market dominance of these tech platforms to continue, then a few a few people are going to decide the outcome of elections because they're going to decide what kind of information you get. A few people are going to own the public debate on the proper use of technology in society because they're going to be able to decide what kind of information you get. And politicians are going to have to maneuver in this very um, upsetting and turgid media environment. Um, or we become like Canada and you can't even get the news on social media. Frightening, frightening. And I'll have to say, like most, the majority of whistleblowers, you possess integrity. Thank and you. so where are you headed? Are you in this fight for the duration? I mean, as, as, as long as my you know, my bank account will allow, I think we're <laughs> going to set up a legal defense fund um, and, you know, really try to ensure that I don't, you know, have to get a second mortgage on my yes. house to do this. Um, yes. But if that's the cost, then that's the cost. You know, you only live one life and I sure I'm going to die with dignity. Good for you. If anything. I might not you. have a Rolex or, you know, I might be buried in my minivan, but it, <laughs> I won't regret the time I spent doing this, knowing how odious these yes. corporations are and how much of a awful precedent they set for the future of technology in innovation. You know, that part to me is also very, very scary is can you imagine a world mm. in which our technology is owned by some of the most um, soulless, soulless I guess, people? I would say anti-intellectual <laughs> yes. people who only see the propagation of wealth yes. and their products as the guiding light. The other thing I'll say is also is that social media has been in a real standstill over the last decade. There hasn't been a ton of innovation. Twitter's pretty much still Twitter. YouTube's pretty much still YouTube. Facebook's pretty much still Facebook. Um, and when we allow tech giants to operate, we also stifle innovation an innovation that could be good and useful for society gets bought up and shut down. And so it's my hope that our politicians see that technology can be a very important and progressive and supportive tool for society. But right now we're in a lock where, you know, the technology itself doesn't work for most of our social institutions, political institutions, cultural institutions, and yet it's the best we've got, and I think we yeah. can do better. 
Well said. And, you know, in this whistleblower community, you are always welcome. Uh, Francis uh, Hagen was at National Whistleblower Day this year. Oh, and very so, cool. yes, it's in Washington, D.C. every mm. July. And I hope we see you there because Count me in. I love you a good party. are a whistleblower and you are part of this community now. And so for any support, we will help you. Uh, you certainly mm. have a wide range of whistleblowers that I can put you in contact with. And mm. I am just so proud of what you have done and the integrity you have shown. You are something else. You are special. So thank you, thank you very much. And, uh, you know, part of our push is uh, for making National Whistleblower Day permanent. And you certainly be will be one of the stars, hopefully, uh, this upcoming year. Well, I'm happy to come to D.C. in July. It sounds like a party. So <laughs> let's do it. Thank you, Doctor. Thank I appreciate you. it. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening. And please don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. If you want to read more whistleblower stories, go to www.whistleblowersblog.org. Music by Rachel Kilgore. Editing and booking by Anissa Shake and Victoria Thompson. And a special thanks to our sponsors, Whistleblower Network News. I think you'll find that it's just as hard to stand up tall as it was when you were small. The truth is hard to say.